This podcast does not provide medical advice. Please listen to the complete disclosure at the end of the recording. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyone Dies, the podcast. I'm Marianne Manso. I'm Charlie Navarrete. So relax, get yourself something to eat, and thank you for spending the next hour with Charlie and me. In the first half, we have our recipe of the week because we need to feed you. We feel it's important. Mm -hmm. Charlie's going to be reading an excerpt from a letter uh, written by Rudolf Nureyev um, to the dance community about his own life as a dancer while he was dying of AIDS. In the second half, um, I'm talking about the diagnosis and treatment of ALS. And uh, last week we did kind of the overview of what ALS is. So if you're saying, hmm, what is ALS? Go listen to that previous recording. And um, and I thought the Nureyev piece really kind of fit in with this, Charlie, because what his love of his life is, is dance. And exactly. You, using the everything um, in his body, just like Garrick. And, yeah. and somebody so, with ALS loses all of that, just, you know, the use of their body. Yeah. All that. Yep. So that's in case you're wondering, how does Nureyev fit in with all this? That's how. Oh, and in our third half, mm-hmm. Charlie is going to be uh, honoring Lou Garrick. So our recipe this week takes us back to World War II rationing. Uh, one example of um, just how deeply the war affected those at home in the U.S. can be found in old cookbooks. And I love collecting old cookbooks. Um, they were written with wartime rationing and scarcity in mind and advised the American homemaker on ideas about how to feed their families uh, properly without using too many of their supplies. So things like sugar, meat, and eggs may be more plentiful now than they were back then. But you can still try these World War II-era recipes at home. Uh, We have a link in our resources. Follow the link um, in the show notes to try the one-egg victory cake from the Royal Baking Powder Cookbook. So if all you have is one egg and you want to make a cake... We got you covered. So, Charlie, mm-hmm. um, you're going to talk with us about Rudolf Nureyev, I understand. Yes. I, I got so, a memo from the corporate office saying oh. that that was happening. Mm-hmm. There's a corporate office? There's an office? Oh, yeah, and there's <laughs> there's all these people who run it. It's like, uh-huh. you know, mm-hmm. it's it's just it's just a Big organization, Charles. Big organization. You, you, you're not doing that thing again where you like set up a table, chairs, and put like cutouts on those chairs, are you? You don't have to tell people my secrets. Oh, no. Uh, that, uh, that was uh, – okay, sorry. <clears throat> In 1984. Some things are private. Yes, they are. Yes. So in 1984. Leave my friends out of this. Are you talking to me now or to your friends? Just never mind. Okay. Move on. In 1984, renowned ballet dancer Rudolf Nureyev, who had defected from the country formerly known as the USSR, tested positive for HIV. For many years, he refused to acknowledge that anything was wrong with his health, and he continued to perform. 
Nuriyev died on January 6th, 1993, at the age of 54. Oh, here's a bit of trivia. The same date as those folks danced through the U.S. Capitol. In the spring of 1992, he entered the final phase of the disease and composed a letter to his greatest love in life, dance. It was the smell of my skin. Oh, let me do it without the Russian accent. I, as much as I know you folks want me to do that Russian accent. It was the smell of my skin changing. It was getting ready before class. It was running away from school and after working in the field with my dad because we were 10 brothers walking those two kilometers to dance school. I would never have been a dancer. I couldn't afford this stream, but I was there with my shoes worn on my feet, with my body opening to music, with a breath making me above the clouds. It was a sense I gave to my being. It was standing there and making my muscles words and poetry. It was the wind in my arms. It was the other guys like me that were there and maybe wouldn't be dancers, but we swapped the sweat silences barely. For 13 years, I studied and worked. No auditions, nothing, because I needed my arms to work in the fields. But I didn't care. I learned to dance and dance because it was impossible for me not to do it. It was impossible for me to think I was elsewhere, not to feel the earth transforming under my feet plants, impossible not to get lost in music, impossible not to get lost in music using my eyes to look in the mirror, to try new steps. Every day I woke up thinking about the moment I would put my feet inside my slippers and do everything by tasting that moment. And when I was there, with the smell of camphor, wood, pipes, I was an eagle on the rooftop of the world. I was a poet among poets. I was everywhere and I was everything. I used to dance because it was my creed, my need, my words that I didn't speak, my struggle, my poverty, my crying. I used to dance because only there my being broke the limits of my social condition, my shyness, my shame. I used to dance and I was with the universe on my hands. And while I was at school, I was studying. Arising the fields at 6 a.m., my mind endured because it was drunk with my body capturing the air. I was poor and they paraded in front of me, guys performing for pageants. They had new clothes. They made trips. I didn't suffer from it. My suffering would have been stopping me from entering the hall and feeling my sweat coming out of the pores of my face. My suffering would have been not being there, not being there, surrounded by that poetry that only the sublimation of art can give. I was a painter, a poet, a sculptor. The first dance of the year-end show got hurt. The first dancer. I was the only one who knew every move because I studied quietly every step. They made me wear his new shiny clothes and dictated me, after 13 years, the responsibility to demonstrate. Nothing was different in those moments I danced on stage. I was like in the hall with my clothes off. I was used to performing, but it was dancing that I cared about. The applause reached me far away.
Behind the scenes, all I wanted was to take off the uncomfortable tights, but everyone's compliments. I had to wait. My sleep wasn't different from other nights. I had danced, and whoever was watching me was just a cloud far away on the horizon. From that moment, my life changed, but not my passion and need to dance. I kept helping my dad in the fields, even though my name was on everyone's mouth. I became one of the brightest stars in dance. Now I know I'm going to die because this disease doesn't forgive. And my body is trapped in a pram. Blood doesn't circulate. I lose weight. But the only thing that goes with me is my dance, my freedom to be. I'm here, but I dance with my mind, fly beyond my words and my pain. I dance my being with the wealth I know I have and will follow me everywhere that I have given myself the chance to exist above effort and have learned that if you experience tiredness and effort dancing, what if you dance sits for effort? If we pity our bleeding feet, if we chase only the aim and not understand the full and unique pleasure of moving, we do not understand the deep essence of life where the meaning is its becoming and not in appearing. Every man should dance for life, not being a dancer, but dancing, who will never know the pleasure of walking into a hall with wooden bars and mirrors, who stops because they don't get results, who always needs stimulus to love or live, hasn't entered the depths of life and will abandon every time life won't give him what he wants. It's the law of love. You love because you feel the need to do it. Not to get something or to be reciprocated. Otherwise, you're destined for unhappiness. I'm dying. And I thank God for giving me a body to dance so that I wouldn't waste a moment of the wonderful gift of life. That, that from incredible? the legendary ballet dancer Rudolf Nureyev. As he entered, really, just the last few days of his life. He wrote all this very shortly before he died. Mm. Just amazing. Yeah. And I just love just this whole thing, this notion of it's like breathing. You do it. No, breathing's not right. Breathing you 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 can't control. It's just you just have to do it. You you can't not do it. Mm-hmm. Um, Some people are that way with exercise. Yes, I'm. I'm kind of that way with chocolate. <laughs> well, there we are. Yes, it's 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 not. It's, well, yes, yes. Okay. We have. We all have our thing that makes our life worth living. You know. Yeah. It could be anything that you say. Well, if if I couldn't have that, I would. I, I would feel less or a loss. You know, and it, and it goes back to, um, you know, that um, saying that, um, you know, the great philosopher Joseph Campbell said about follow your bliss, you know, that you do something because it, it gives you pleasure. You're not trying mm -hmm. to prove anything. You're not trying to create something. It just gives you pleasure. And someone on the level of, of Nureyev, to hear that he did it because it was his bliss. 
Mm-hmm. Not to be a star. Not to... No, because it gave him bliss. Obviously at a very high level. But it just... It gave him bliss. People find bliss, you know, planting their gardens. It's just... What do you find bliss in? Hmm. Reading. You know what? Sitting at a bar uh, for a few hours, and in that time, reading, um, having a drink or two, not forgetting about the time. That. Mm. Yeah, not, not just reading. There's just something nice about sitting in a bar. For me, uh, mm-hmm. at the corner, and just sitting there reading. That. That does sound nice. Yeah. And with that pleasant thought, please go to our webpage for a link for this episode's recipe and additional resources for this program. We hope you will follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and remember to rate and review this podcast. As a nonprofit, we always appreciate your donations. Please go to our webpage and donate. Yes, because hmm. wouldn't it give you bliss to donate? I think so. Oh, there we it's there we are. It's worth a try. Yes, exactly. It's worth a try. Maybe in the end it won't be blissful, but hey, give it a shot. Or 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 two. Really? Or two. And tell your friends. Mm-hmm. So, please go to our website to donate in support of our work. That website is www.everyonedies.org. That's every, the number one, dies.org. Marianne, what's up in the second half? So, Charlie, we're going to continue our discussion about ALS and talk about diagnosis and management. So... Since the cause of ALS is not known, there's not a single test to figure out if it is or not. And and Marianne, diagnosis. I'm I'm hmm. curious. Um, I don't quite know how to ask this. I mean, has ALS been around forever? You know, like the common colds, or is is this something? Yeah, I'm, um, I'm trying to ask you, like, how old is ALS? Or is, is that possible well, to thing, answer? the thing was, is that prior to the technology being able to have a feeding tube and BiPAP and things like that, uh-huh. once your muscles stopped working and you weren't able to swallow and breathe, you yeah. died much quickly than you do now. So um, it's not it's not a, it's not a new disease, but... I don't know what, actually, I didn't look at the history to see what they called it prior to, but it was probably one of those diseases where, I mean, it's not that common in the first place. And so, you know, if somebody had those kinds of symptoms, you didn't know what it was, Mm. and they really didn't live that long because there was no way, there was no what you could call supportive care to help manage symptoms and keep them alive. So the diagnosis of ALS is usually based on um, looking at 
what symptoms there are, the progression of symptoms, and then ruling out all of the other diseases that could cause similar symptoms. So since there is no test, you just you have to do tests to make sure it's oh, not something by, else. Oh, okay, by elimination, okay, yeah. Right. So just like with Alzheimer's disease, it's like there's right. no test for that, so you have to rule out everything else. So the things that they're going to rule out or make sure that you don't have when they're doing this testing is um, immunodeficiency virus, HIV, Lyme disease, um, syphilis, as well as any other neurological or disorders like multiple sclerosis, post-polio syndrome, multifocal motor neuropathy. So they, they just make sure it's not in any of those. So amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS, is difficult to diagnose early because it can mimic a lot of other diseases. So what could you expect when you go in for testing? Well, you can expect that they're going to do um, an EMG or electromyogram, sorry, where the doctor inserts a needle electrode through your skin into various muscles, and they're looking to see the electrical activity of your muscles when they um, contract and when they're at rest. So ab abnormalities in muscles seen in the EMG can help doctors diagnose or rule out ALS. And it can also help um, the physical therapist, you know, like plan your exercise therapy. Then the second thing they can do are nerve conduction studies that measure your nerves' ability to send impulses to muscles in different areas of your body. Uh, this test can determine if you have nerve damage or certain um, muscle or nerve diseases. Third, they do an MRI. Uh, it uses radio waves and a powerful magnetic field. The MRI produces detailed images of your brain and your spinal cord. An MRI can reveal spinal cord tumors, herniated discs in your neck, or other conditions that might be causing your symptoms. Blood and urine tests. They analyze samples of your blood and urine in the lab to eliminate, you know, is there other issues, problems with blood sugars, things like that. Um, they could do a spinal tap, which is a lumbar puncture. And this involves removing a sample of your spinal fluid for laboratory testing where they put a small needle between the vertebrae of your lower back, pull out some of that spinal fluid, and then that gets analyzed. Uh, muscle biopsy. Um, if your doctor thinks it might be some other muscular disease rather than ALS, they might do a um, muscle biopsy. Uh, and you're put under local anesthesia, a small portion of your muscle is removed and sent to the lab for analysis. So those are the ways that they rule out. If they can't find any other reason for why you're having your symptoms, the presumption then is that it's ALS. Now, managing ALS usually involves treating the symptoms and providing supportive care to improve the quality of life and to prolong survival. So there is no treatment. It will progress. The goal at this point is to slow that progression. Right, okay. Really slow it down, okay? So they can include things like a feeding tube for nutritional purposes um, where they would put a tube like into your, 
into your belly. Um, and then they're able to um, sort of think of it using gravity, um, put, they, they make, you know, cans of different kinds of feeding tube flu- foods mm-hmm. um, down, you know, complete nutrition foods yeah. through that tube. It can put water through that tube. They can put all your medicine through that tube. Um, you don't, so you don't eat because you don't have the muscles to chew, to swallow, um, and, you know, to safely get it, get it down where it needs to go. So they can put in a feeding tube and that's going to really support your nutrition. And, um, the feeding tube doesn't keep you from aspirating or making those fluids kind of back up and go into your, um, lungs. Some people will think, well, you know, this, having that feeding tube down there is going to keep it from doing that. But in fact, that's not true. Um, you might still have trouble with what's called aspiration pneumonia, but the feeding tube is going to keep you nutritionally going. Right. And, um, that's, you know, I, I, I think that that's got really good, um, possibilities for people and can keep you going much longer if, um, that's what you want to do. Um, they can also use a ventilator or a BiPAP machine where the BiPAP is going to, um, in a biphasal way. So just like we breathe in and breathe out, there's two phases, right? Mm -hmm. Bi. Um, so this machine, you put a mask on and the machine will push that air in for you. And some people are willing to use use the BiPAP. Some people say, absolutely not. I had a patient when I was working in hospice who um, had all of the, you know, the eye scanning technology where, you know, she, she'd move her eyes and it would, she'd stop on the letter of the alphabet and that would then translate into a voice machine so that she could talk. Um, she she had the feeding tube, but she did not want the BiPAP. Um, yeah. She did not want a ventilator, and she was very clear about that. She had conversations with her husband, with her kids, and she said, when I get to the point where I'm not able to breathe adequately to support life, I don't want to live. And as it turned out, um, I was the nurse that you know, was sent out to her when she was in this, in this difficulty and where she was having difficulty breathing. And, you know, we revisited with her children. They were supportive of her decision. Her husband said, absolutely, I support a decision. Her physician, you know, then put in the orders to um, sedate her. Now, the point in that point is not to, oh, let's give her a lethal dose of medicine. The point is to let somebody be asleep when the lungs stop working. Oh, okay. Because if you, you know, if you can go in your sleep and you don't know that it's happening, there's no, it's not painful. It doesn't hurt. Right. Um, you just stop breathing. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and so that, the medicine... Um, and wow, when you say that, I think, yeah, that's, that's the way to go, you know? So, and, um, and it's, it's greater family know, that, support of that. Yes. Yeah. 
well, much easier, much easier for her. And she was um, totally on the ball, could, you know, look me in, in the right, eyes. Right, exactly, yeah. It was, it was an, an, as a nurse, as a nurse caring for somebody um, with that disease, it was a very profound experience. I'll never forget her. Yeah, and I remember and, what, you, what um, you said last week, uh, last week's episode is, you know, you lose all functions except your brain. <laughs> you, yeah, right. everything, yeah, your brain is 100%. Um, uh, I can't imagine. So she, you know, she stuck to her decision. Um, we started a, a, a drip just so that she, she was, you know, asleep. Mm -hmm. Not dead, but asleep. And um, within a few hours, she had died. Um, so the thing about any intervention, yeah. you need to look at what is it that they're offering you and what does that do to your quality of life as though ALS hasn't affected your quality of life already. But um, what, what are you hoping for from the intervention? Because with a lot of things, it might be really difficult to stop something that you start. You know, like, so let's say she went on the BiPAP. Well, then it's a matter of then waiting for, is she going to get a pneumonia? What's, what's going to be the thing that's going to happen that is going to end your life? Mm -hmm. Because with this disease, it's progressive and there is no treatment. So for her, she said, when I can't breathe on my own, I'm done. Everybody's going to have a different place where they say, if I can't do X, I'm done. So um, any kind of choice that you make, that you choose, you want to think about, um, and, you know, in light of whatever disease it is that you have, is w what's the end game? You know, we all, you know, we always say, of course, we always say everyone dies because everyone does die. But what is the situation with your disease and with the intervention that you're choosing or not choosing. Now, there are some medications to treat the progression of ALS, meaning slow it down. Um, their effectiveness and mechanism of action, they really don't understand how they work. Um, medicine in the context of ALS treatments are usually drugs to to that are designed to alleviate symptoms like fatigue, muscle cramps, spasticity, you know, hands, you know, cramping up like that. So the Food and Drug Administration has approved two drugs for ALS. One is called Riluzol. I'm sorry, I, I, my, my tongue got stuck on that, Riluzo. Um, this is taken orally. It's been shown to increase life expectancy by three to six months. It can cause side effects such as dizziness. Um, your tummy can get really upset. It can ups uh, affect your liver. Um, your doctor's going to monitor your uh, blood counts and liver counts. Um, there was a study, and I, and I gave you a reference to the study by Nib in 2016. It's in our show notes, where they looked at Rilozole, um, and they wanted to know, is it going to slow progression? Um, that leads to respiratory involvement. 
And the drugs did show in the study to prolong overall survival, but its effect on particular stages of the condition um, were, you know, equivocal. It's like, does it really? Um, So their analysis was that, from their study, was that Rilazole um, be used is what was especially beneficial for younger patients and those um, with a longer diagnostic delay. So if you were younger and you didn't go to the doctor like the first time you dropped something, um, you know, like if you put off your delay, that those were the people that the drug worked, seemed to work better for. Um, but that's one study and... Um, you could read it and look at it yourself and think about that. But it seems like at least um, you might be able to count on an additional three to six months by taking that. There's also another drug called endoverone or uh, radicava. This drug um, is given by an IV infusion, um, has been shown to reduce the decline in daily functioning, its effect on lifespan isn't yet known. Um, side effects can include bruising, headache, shortness of breath. And this medicine is given daily for two weeks a month. So the doctor might, or primary care provider, might also prescribe medications to provide relief from other symptoms like muscle cramps, and spasm, constipation, fatigue, you could get excess saliva and phlegm, you know, because you can't, you know, like normally we can clear our throat or cough something out, but that can be lost with this disease. Mm. Pain, depression, sleep problems, and those uncontrolled outbursts of laughing or crying that can ha- happen with these neurological diseases. Right. So some of the therapies are um, breathing care. Uh, eventually with this disease, you're not going to be able to the person is able to breathe because of muscle weakness. And um, they have devices. They have mechanical ventilation that I just talked about. They have BiPAP I just talked about. Um, They can put in a a tracheostomy, a hole, you know, in your neck and put a um, tube down there and put you on a ventilator that'll just breathe for you. And... Like I said, those things will work, but it's a lot harder to stop something than just not starting it in the first place. I've been doing this work for a really long time, and the agony that family members go through when they say, well, or the person says, I don't want this ventilator anymore, and having to make the decision or participate in the decision of taking that off um, is really hard, is really hard for people. And um, I had one patient who was on the ventilator, did not want to be on the ventilator, wide awake, talking. It was not an ALS patient, but he's like, I didn't want this. They did this and it needs to come out. And I was the one who was working in the palliative care team, got him down to our palliative care unit. Um, He talked with his family, and he said, okay, get this out of me. And it was the only time that I had somebody who was, like, awake and looking me in the eye as I was taking out that tube. 
Oh wow! Um, he was he he was he was comfortable. We'd given him medicine, um, you know, some Ativan and some morphine, but he was still awake, and he was like, "Thank you, thank you for doing this." Wow! But okay. as the nurse practitioner, it was really hard to have somebody just awake. <laughs> you know, yeah. I don't know. You mm. know, usually people are kind of asleep, or but you know. He was he was right there, but he was so incredibly grateful to get that thing gone. You know, and it, and it goes back to what we always advocate about: just to prepare. I mean, figure out what you want in advance, what your limits are. You know, share them with uh, family, friends, and yeah. But Charlie, even in those situations, there are times when people panic. Oh, I understand that. And yeah. Yeah. you know the 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 wife panicked. He got taken to the hospital. They intubated him, and and he's like, "I didn't want this." It's like, "Oh, you're right. I knew that." Now what do we do? And he said, "I want it gone." Well, that's like a whole other level of decision. And so you know he 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 knew what he wanted. He said what he wanted. People panic. I'm and, sorry. Was, uh, was something written down already? That I mean, or was all yeah? The, but she didn't have she didn't she didn't have it with her. He wasn't able to communicate. Well, and, and this is the thing. Well, you know that we say it's not it's not enough that you know you figure out what you want. You know, with the with the people who will be speaking for you when you can't, they need to be on board. I mean, well, and she wasn't that she wasn't on board. She panicked. Do you see what I'm saying? She panicked mm-hmm. when she called 911. She panicked. And, and you know, people, I've had this talk with so many people when I worked in hospices that people think, oh, yeah, I'm ready. I, I'm ready for whatever happens until whatever happens, happens. And then they realize, oh, no, I'm not ready for this. Yeah, see, and that's, so, and that's, that's why I, I, you know, I picked my, my brother and, and sister who will be, you know, <laughs> have no problem pulling the plug on me. Um, and then also you. Well, you should have picked me. <laughs> no, no, no. no. But rem- when, you know you're part of that group. Um, because uh, and, it, and it was great because— The holy trinity yeah, were, of Charlie's with, people. You know, the Navarrete siblings, you know, we're all on the same page. It's like, no, pull the plug. This this is what I want. I and Anything beyond that, no. And, you know, because, you know— well, my family's in another state, or I'm in the other state. Everybody else is, in, well, never mind, in Michigan. Um, yeah, it's just that. And, you know, everyone knows, you know, to contact you <laughs> just in case there's, you know, any little flaw. And, yeah, I expect you to tell them, but yeah, you, pull the plug. It's been nice knowing him. No. And he, and he, still, and he still owes me 20 bucks. I, but I'm, not, still. I'm not- I'm I'm on a plane and uh, let me pull the blood. Oh, yeah, right. no, I would never do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Give him enough morphine that he's not not in pain. I'll be on a plane and uh, I'll pull up myself. Yes, thank you. Which uh, would be perfectly but, fine with but me. The thi- but the thing yeah. is, is that um, we can be really cavalier. Mm-hmm. And say, yeah, I'm, I'll I'll pull the plug until Unt- and, and you know what you're, you're in that situation. Right. I understand that it's a whole different animal. Yep. It's a whole different set of yep. feelings. It's a whole. It's it's a whole. You're, different you're thing. right. I mean, we're joking about it here, um, 
I, I know I, I will rely on the three of you. Wait, I wasn't joking. I wasn't joking. No, no, jo- joking about, um, you know, just making jokes about this. But I know that, yeah, the, the three no, of you. No, I, I wasn't joking about pu- pulling no, no, the plug for you. No, that's what I mean. But I know <laughs> at, at the end of the day, I don't have to worry about the plug being pulled with, you know, with the three of you. But I do understand when, it, you know, no, I, I've seen that enough you know, with, you know, clients I've mm-hmm. had to work with where, yeah, all the paperwork was there. The discussion with the family had been there. Everybody was on the same page. And as you say, until that moment came, mm-hmm. you know, um, yeah. And then, and then it's so interesting. Everybody's surprised. Like they've been, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. people, people yeah. been on hospice for months and then they're saying, wait, wait, what now? And in your head, you're thinking, he's been on hospice for months. You knew this time was coming. And even though you cognitively, you know, in your head, know that that time is coming, it's still a surprise. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Got it. Oh, well. So besides breathing, there's physical therapy to keep muscles stretched, um, you might need to learn how to walk with a brace or a walker, or how to use your wheelchair without running everybody over. <laughs> um, one of my lessons in working at the at the VA was when vets would come into the um, elevator with their wheelchairs. Man, I'd curl up my toes in my shoes and move out of the way because you don't really they don't really know where their tires are, but I know where my feet are. are. And you get yeah. run over a few times. It's like yeah, you learn. Um, occupational therapy can help to find um, ways to keep you independent uh, despite arm and hand weakness. There's all kinds of adapted equipment that you can use to help dressing and grooming and all of that. And also modifying your home. There's going to have to be some changes in the home so that you can function within that home. Um, I, I can remember I had to have a toilet replaced in my house and I got a um, ADA higher toilet and the kids are like why'd you do that and it's like you know I'm not going to always be able to get off you know the lower toilet so this thing needs to be replaced I'm going to you know put in an adaptive toilet because I'm not getting any younger you know those kinds of things are things that you can do whether or not you have ALS or anything else um, speech therapy uh, help you learn other forms of communication and also how to learn your um, text-to-speech applications that um, will get set up for you. Nutritional support, um, foods that are easier for you to eat, adapting to the feeding tube, and psychological and social support um, to help with issues about finances, which can be a big issue. Insurance, getting equipment, paying for devices that you need, and the psychologists and social workers provide emotional support for both you and your family. Now, most people with ALS die from respiratory failure, which occurs when people cannot get enough oxygen from their lungs into their blood or when they cannot properly remove the carbon dioxide from their blood. Um, In ALS, this happens because the disease can eventually lead to paralysis of the muscles that control breathing. In the late stages of ALS, it becomes hard for patients to exhale carbon dioxide. High levels of carbon dioxide in the body cause low levels of consciousness, 
leading patients to sleep for long periods of time. And often, um, patients with ALS will die very peacefully while sleeping. So there is, you know, some comfort, some comfort. Yeah, there is comfort in that, yeah. So Charlie, you know, the often when you people say ALS, it's like, what is that? Lou Gehrig's disease? Yeah, exactly. So um, you're going to be talking about Lou Gehrig today? Yes. And Gehrig, of course, a great uh, baseball player, was known as the Iron Horse for his proudness as a hitter and for his durability. He was an all-star uh, seven consecutive times, a triple crown winner once, and an American League most valuable player twice, as well as a member of six World Series champion teams. The purpose of Lou Gehrig's farewell speech was to thank his fans and to explain how he had lived a good and fortunate life, even with ALS. ALS, of course, is commonly known as Lou Gehrig's disease, and it was named after him when he was forced to retire after developing the disease in uh, 1939. So here is Lou Gehrig's farewell speech. Um, It was at Yankee Stadium. And this is what he said to the crowd. Fans, for the past two weeks, you have been reading about the bad break I got. Yet today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. I have been in ballparks for 17 years and have never received anything but kindness and encouragement from you fans. Look at these grand men. Which of you wouldn't consider it the highlight of his career just to associate with them for even one day? Sure, I'm lucky. Who wouldn't consider it an honor to have known Jacob Rupert? Also the builder of baseball's greatest empire, Ed Barrow. To have spent six years with that wonderful little fellow, Miller Huggins. And to have spent the next nine years with that outstanding leader, that smart student of psychology, the best manager in baseball today, Joe McCarthy. Sure, I'm lucky. When the New York Giants, a team you would give your right arm to beat, and vice versa, sends you a gift, that's something. When everybody down to the groundskeeper and those boys in white coats remember you with trophies, that's something. When you have a wonderful mother-in-law who takes sides with you and squabbles with her own daughter, that's something. When you have a father and a mother who work all their lives so you can have an education and build your body, it's a blessing. When you have a wife who has been a tower of strength and shown more courage than you dream existed, that's the finest I know. So I close in saying that I may have had a tough break, but I have an awful lot to live for. So, isn't it interesting with all of these different stories last week and this yeah. week is that when the thing that they seem to have in common is that when hit with a serious illness or a terminal illness, the, the kind of respond, resounding thought is how lucky they are. They look and they say, I'm really very lucky. Yeah. Uh, actually, we... we mentioned before, you know, looking at what, what they have, rather what they don't have. And, and even in, a, in an extreme situations like this, I mean, they're dying. But yeah, looking at what they have rather, you know, than what's missing, you know. So, you know, it's like 
we should think of every day as a gift. We don't have to be dying in order to have Exactly. Yeah, very true. So from 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 you know, all the awards and accolades um Garrick received, his most uh, cherished item uh, was a trophy given to him from his 1939 Yankees teammates. On one side of the trophy were the names of all his current teammates. The other side, a poem written by New York Times sports columnist John Kierden, which reads, To Lou Gehrig, We've been to the wars together. We took our foes as they came. And always you were the leader. And ever you played the game. Idol of cheering millions, Records are yours by sheaves. Iron of frame they hailed you, decked you with laurel leaves. But higher than that we hold you, we who have known you best, knowing the way you came through every human test. Let this be a silent token of lasting friendship's gleam, and all that we've left unspoken, your pals of the Yankee team. And to see a picture of this, uh, you can go to our website, and uh, and you'll see a picture of it, of the trophy. Kind of looks, lo- kind of looks like a coffee urn. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> so with that, please stay tuned for the ongoing adventures of Everyone Dies, and thank you for listening. This is Charlie Navarrete, and from Marlena Dietrich. When you're dead, you're dead. That's it. And I'm Marianne Matzo, and we'll see you in all the old familiar places. Remember, every day is a gift. This podcast does not provide medical advice. All discussion on this podcast, such as treatments, dosages, outcomes, charts, patient profiles, advice, messages, and any other discussion are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for professional medical advice or treatment. Always seek the advice of your primary care practitioner or other qualified health providers with any questions that you may have regarding your health. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard from this podcast. If you think you may have a medical emergency, call your doctor or 911 immediately. Everyone Dies does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, practitioners, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned in this podcast. Reliance on any information provided in this podcast by persons appearing on this podcast at the invitation of Everyone Dies or by other members is solely at your own risk.